right. Welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast today. We have John Mackey. Welcome, John. Hey, James. How are things? No, things are good. Things are good. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having and me. And it's, it's awesome to bring you on from a kickboxing background. Obviously, we don't have many... We just don't have many coaches in that space, maybe because it's not as maybe professional as boxing and MMA and things like that. So it's kind of rare, which is really nice. So thought to maybe give a little brief background about yourself, what you've been up to, and we're going to dive into some, I guess, conditioning and endurance principles. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks, James, for having me on the podcast. Delighted to be here. Uh, looking forward to a bit of a chat and a bit of a ramble about all things kickboxing and, and training. Yeah. So I started my own training in 1986 when I was a wee lad here in Dublin in Ireland. I was 10 years old. Uh, got involved with Taekwondo initially and uh, quickly kind of transferred over into, into kickboxing over the years and did kind of a hybrid style of training between Taekwondo and kickboxing. Uh, I've been coaching within kickboxing now for nearly 20 years and oh, it must be nearly 12 of those uh, coaching with the national team. So I'm currently coaching the, the senior national team within kickboxing Ireland here, which is the national governing body uh, nice. for the sport. So working with elite amateur athletes for the last lot of years and enjoying that. I've just, just come out of a master's degree, well, it's a couple of years now. I feel like I've still just come out of it um, in coaching and <laughs> performance science, uh, which I spent most of that down the rabbit hole of endurance, uh, the science of endurance. So the, kind of the, the premise for me going down that particular avenue was to try and understand a little bit more about how I could be more proficient with training uh, combat sport athletes um, and I found pretty pretty early on in the Masters, actually, that if you wanted to really understand the science of endurance and what's happening at a systemic and a peripheral level, you had to look into the, the world of endurance sports where there's decades and decades of really solid evidence in relation to uh, uh, endurance adaptations and that. Now, now I know combat sport is, is slightly different to endurance sports, but having said that, over the last 10 or 15 years, the the information that's a, that's existing within the science of endurance and in, and in long distance endurance sports has slowly trickled into other sports uh, to our own that, that would have you know high intensity inter, intermittent activity or repeated activities such as mountain biking cyclocross uh speed skating 100 and 200 meter sprints etc so the you know the the fundamental science of endurance and 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 the adaptations sought around improving endurance, um, while fundamentally based in long distance sports, has now leveraged a lot of new activity within other sports similar, with similar similar mm. physiological demands of our own. So I've been down that rabbit hole. I keep coming up every now and again for, for air. We managed to publish a paper in 2021, which was focused on some of the physiological thresholds relating to um, uh, functional threshold power, which is a concept probably better known within cycling and, and triathlon. So I mm. just started a, a professional doctorate uh, this week within the domain of elite performance and sport. I'm oh, probably nice. going to take a pivot on that one. Um, so I work professionally in high-performance sport within canoeing here in Ireland. So I'm the performance director for the Olympic program. Um, because it's a professional doctorate, I need to kind of uh, I need to square the research around what I'm doing professionally on a day-to-day basis. So looking at kind of sustainable pathways into high-performance programs and bringing young people through sport and, uh, and stuff like that. So that's that's pretty much me in a, in a nutshell, James. No, nice. That's There's a lot going on there, a lot for the listeners to, to be able to learn from you too, especially within this endurance domain. Now, maybe we, let's start there. Obviously, that's kind of where you've been lately as well in terms of um, I guess maybe what you've been researching and applying. Mm. So maybe let's start in terms of your philosophy of, I guess, conditioning and preparation. Let's, let's stay with kickboxing for now, since sure. that's kind of like the easiest yeah. one to, to go with. So you kind of your, your underarching philosophy of that and kind of, I guess, how do you look at conditioning? For, are you taking a purely physiological approach, like looking at maybe energy systems and that, or are you kind of like, more on the work capacity side, I just want to improve the outputs at, I don't know, certain time intervals and things, or blend, or, or what's your... Yeah, idea? it's definitely a blended approach, James. My, my overarching philosophy has has meandered over the last couple of years as I try to make sense of the, the <laughs> literature and the research. Um, it's as wide as it is deep in relation to what's been found with endurance sports over the last 50 years. 
Um, and my philosophy for conditioning within kickboxing is starting to shape itself around actually the uh, a polarized model or a bastardized version of a polarized model. Pretty much because our end game or our end output is not long distance uh, endurance. It's not high volume. It's 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 small in volume. It's it's high intensity, short duration. Um, and with that. Um, I have come to a kind of an agreement in my own head of what's probably best. And I see this in terms of testing. Uh, so I, I do a lot of physiological testing with the team here in Dublin um, and have been doing for a couple of years. And I've had the, the opportunity to apply some of the theory and practice in relation to um, endurance uh, capacity building into some real world experiences. Uh, and the application of a polarized approach at certain times of the year, um, from my observations and from my experiences, has seen uh, an increase in, in kickboxing athletes' endurance capacity. And what I mean by that, when I say endurance capacity within, within the context of kickboxing, it's the ability to perform repeated high-intensity exchanges without fatiguing, as opposed to just being, being on, a, on a steady state process from one time point to another. So effectively, athletes see with with a, an eight to twelve week block of of polarized training. Um, athletes generally see to um, <coughs> seem to see an inflection in their aerobic capacity, and in particular in relation to the relationship between physiological thresholds, such as the ventilatory threshold, uh, the first ventilatory threshold, and the second ventilatory threshold. And just high intensity outputs in terms of 30 second sprints or 30, 30 second max efforts on the bag and, and an increase in the overall uh, output of that and, and the amount of, for, for example, the amount of 30 second intervals that they can sustain. Um, and you see like a nice rapid recovery rate in between 30 seconds and uh, between those in, in those sessions. So to answer your question, Generation of my philosophy, it has it's come to a point now where I like to apply a a, a bipolar approach, I guess, um, in relation to training intensity distribution. Where I do encourage the athletes to focus, um, I wouldn't say as much as what a typical endurance athlete would do on a weekly basis in terms of their cycle. I mean, some of these guys, uh, well trained endurance athletes, are putting in between five and ten hours a day. And uh, if some of these guys are funded, yeah. you know, they've got the lifestyle to do it. Uh, you know, you talk to an amateur kickboxing athlete who has trying to hold down a job or is in college and has other commitments yeah. going on to do 10 hours endurance training a day. So, you know, they'd look at you and think you're off your head. <laughs> um, but but I, do, I do try and encourage an amount of, of, of low intensity training. Um, somewhere between 70% of the, of the training program at low intensity and then the other... Uh, the other 30% mm. um, kind of structured around threshold and above or high intensity. Um, and so far, so good in, in, in relation to that. And, and I guess what you have to try and do is build it around the athletes' kind of real-world uh, experiences, what's happening <clears> in their lives and stuff. Uh, but, you know, to date, we've found some reasonable um, results in, 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 you know, and that's a, a good application. Um, as long as, as long as you're not taking away from the skills training, um, you know, it, it, yeah, it seems to be working pretty well, getting some good results in that. Nice. Yeah, we've we're very similar philosophies then around around conditioning and around prioritizing that that low intensity yeah. area. But just quickly for the listeners as well, do you want to maybe just kind of define what you mean by polarized sure. model and then by the ventilatory threshold one and two? Yeah, sure. So the, the <laughs> polarized model in, in uh, relation to endurance training um, probably found its birthplace in, in, in Norway with the great uh, Dr. Steven Seiler. So a, a, a study that was done, I think, circa 2006, which was spearheaded by himself, was an, an observational study as well as anything else about how elite endurance athletes and world champion Olympic medalists were actually scheduling their training intensities throughout their programs. And what they found across multiple sports was that um, some of the top guys uh, were allocating around 75 to 80% of their training time to low intensity training. Now, Low intensity training is, is, is uh, it, it generally kind of found to be in and around 
that first ventilatory threshold point. And this first ventilatory threshold point on a graded exercise test or a ramp test um, it usually correlates with the first lactate turn point or the gas exchange threshold you might hear uh, called by. That's the thing with these threshold names, James. You know, you could go to different papers and different books and different podcasts and somebody has a different name for the same threshold point. So the identification of the ventilatory threshold, the first VT1, um, is kind of that, that area within the intensity continuum uh, that is said to be at low intensities, uh, essentially just before lactate starts to spill out of the cells and into the blood. Um, so just below that, the, the athlete is said to be at a, a, a producing ATP purely aerobically. So, Is there a way to know if you're at that point without a... Without a test? There, yeah, like, there are some reasonably validated field tests. Um, I guess one of the most common ones is the talk test or nasal breathing. So if you're, for example, if you decide to uh, do some training, some low-intensity training, and, and one of the modalities that you use is jogging, well, then you should be able to jog relatively comfortably um, and mm-hmm. able to have a conversation with somebody if you're out with them. If you're not with them, you should be able to uh, comfortably complete the run uh, nasal breathing. So I guess it's that point that there's, there's, there's a change in minute ventilation when you cross over that threshold because of a slight increase in lactate. And of course, with lactate comes, you know, the pesky hydrogen ions that come with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The problem. It's the increase in <laughs> ventilation as we try to buffer these ions and get rid of them uh, that suggests we've just crossed over or, or we've just moved through some sort of physiological phenomenon. Um, so just below that or at that, uh, is the first ventilator, ventilator threshold or the first lactate threshold. Um, and high-end elite endurance athletes were found to spend nearly 80% of their time training at this particular te- intensity, with the other 15 to 20% found at the, the other end of the intensity spectrum, which is at the second threshold or above that. So the intensity continuum is broken down into four intensity domains, low, moderate, heavy, and severe. Um, and I guess one of the thresholds that's come under most scrutiny and most discussion and debate and research is actually the second threshold point, uh, the, vent- the second ventilating threshold, the second lactate threshold, the respiratory compensation point, sometimes referred to, although kind of outdated now, as the anaerobic threshold, which is essentially, when I talk to athletes about this, because I try to keep I try to keep the nomenclature as as simple as possible. Um, I say this is the fatigue threshold. This is the gateway into unsustainability Mm. where you can't sustain high power outputs for for too long without having to slow down or take a break or come back down below that threshold, recover and go again. So in relation to combat sports or kickboxing uh, performance, and this is a very important threshold, Um, I'm going to go into the reasons why um, in a couple of minutes, but... um, to answer the question about where the polarized method comes from, um, what they found was the elite endurance athletes spent 15 to 20% of their time training at the other end, and very little, in fact, was spent in the middle. So it was either low intensity mm. or high to super high intensity efforts um, that they were training in. And this, uh, this led to superior endurance adaptations. Now, the discussions, as I said, and the debates are raging and ongoing, and only recently we had some <laughs> papers published um, that was kind of suggesting that a polarized approach wasn't the best method at all, and in fact it was a pyramidal approach where training at threshold was said to be uh, more conducive to endurance um, training and, and endurance preparation. And I spoke to Stephen Seiler about this online, and I was I was kind of... I was interested to hear his thoughts in, in relation to, you know, why athletes should steer away from training at or below threshold. And he said that wasn't the point at all in relation to polarized. It was everything just below at or above threshold as opposed to being, you know, after that threshold point. So he said, as long as, as, long as you're accounting the time spent at that second threshold point and, and categorizing as high intensity, well, then it's effectively a polarized approach. But essentially, those athletes spend very little time um, in the moderate domain. So where this kind of, um, I think it's been termed sometimes as no man's land or, you know, the athlete being in kind of moderato, just kind of in, in between these two physiological threshold points. 
So there's, there's things that can be learned from that. And I guess it's not to suggest that nothing happens within the moderate intensity domain, but I think it's about bang for your buck and getting the best out of your training uh, in relation to uh, training for, for endurance. Um, and though, and, and, and though that, that polarized approach is essentially built around those two physiological threshold points. So hence the reason why uh, as a combat athlete or as any, any, any athlete in a sport that has an element of endurance to it should really understand where they are within their own physiological makeup. No, that makes sense. That's, that's, I guess that whole polarized model, high, low model, I guess another yeah. term, term you can use for it that maybe some of us might understand from, from reading street science of fighting as well. Yes. But I guess the, the question becomes then a polarized model, you're focusing on the low intensity into the spectrum and the high intensity into the spectrum, the technical training itself. Do you believe that covers enough of the low intensity side to not have to do as much on this? Or do you always need to just top up on the low intensity work because you need that? It, it depends. It's a great question, James. And it, it really depends. And it depends on the athlete that you're working with. So from my experiences, athletes who tend to be very well conditioned, when they do their skills work, their bag work, their pad work, and even during their simulated sparring work, tend to always push towards the higher intensities because it's easier for them to do that. They're quite efficient. Um, they get a good response uh, to that type of training. Athletes less conditioned tend to be a little tend to be a little lazier, and, and, and only because they can't push as hard, and they do end up kind of hanging around between those two threshold points. But it's never mm. really low enough to say it's a low intensity uh, training session. Mm, gotcha. It's never, it's never low enough. I've never witnessed, and I've taken so many heart rate monitor readings and lactate readings and RPE uh, readings from athletes just training, just bag work and pad work and, and simulated sparring. Um, you know, and it's never, it's never down around that that first threshold point. It's always either in the middle or with the more conditioned guys who, who are happy to push themselves on will flow towards 80, 85% max heart rate because they're working hard and they're working efficiently. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, would, I, I take an individual approach when I'm working with athletes, and it's not just about running them through a test and then saying, oh, here, you know, spend 80% of your time training down here and the other 20 doing this. But I do try to get in with them and try and monitor what's happening within the skills training uh, classes and where they tend to hover. Um, in terms of their output and that, uh, and then try and build something around that. So okay. yeah, it's important to understand that because at the same time, you don't want to be you know you don't want to be overwhelming the system with a lot of intensity uh, if they're already kind of at that. And that's important in when you are dealing with conditioned athletes who train hard um, and they're spending extra time at that second threshold, so they're training high intensity a lot more than what they probably think they are. So. If, if you've got an athlete who does that, so they're on the pads, they're on the bike, they're doing the skills training, and they're pushing 85, 80, 85% max heart rate, and then you come along and stick a lot of high-intensity training on top of that for two or three times a week, well, then you may have doubled what they're doing mm -hmm. from a high-intensity workload perspective. And, of course, what comes with that is risk of overreaching and you know pushing them into that kind of overtraining state uh, and all of the negative implications of doing too much high-intensity training, even though they're conditioned athletes, that can still have a negative effect on them. So you have to take it on an individual basis, James, and just make sure that what, whatever yeah. they're doing and, and, and working on their own baseline physiology, that you can actually structure a program that suits them and that they're going to get some bang for, for their books from. Does, does this ratio, let's just take, for example, this 80-20 ratio is used for what the specific athlete. Does that change as you get closer yes. to a fight? So that will be maybe out of camp, but then in camp that kind of 100%. changes. How does yeah, that change? Yeah, 100%. So in, in, in talking to some of the physiologists through Twitter and that, we've come to call this kind of a – I called it a bastardized, <laughs> polarized version, but they didn't like that. So we call it a bipolar version. So, if, yeah, effectively, I mean, in, in kickboxing, and it's it's – it's not like professional sport where you've got this, you know, every fight is, uh, you know, every fight that comes up is super important, you know, where you've got this undulating kind of um, um, schedule or, or, or calendar throughout the year. In kickboxing, while we have World Cups and targeted events throughout the year, we essentially have one big event to focus on, which is either September or November, and that's either a European or World Championships. So they're the big event. That's the big target for national team members. 
Um, so we can apply in in some ways where it's kind of lucky we can apply sometimes a block a, a kind of a block periodized approach to the GPP phase. Um, but in terms of that eighty percent, it will invert itself closer we get to camp. So the idea of 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 training outside of camp is mm. to build a massive platform of aerobic endurance, build your strength capacities, improve your force production rates, and then when you get to a twelve week camp. You know you're going into that camp and you're going to be able to train your backside off. You know you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be able to train really, really hard for that. And, and as that happens, as you get closer to the event, less time is spent training within those low intensity zones and more time training on those high to super high intensity uh, zones. So we've got this kind of inversion that happens or a bipolar approach the closer we get to an event. Gotcha. I guess, I guess how much extra high intensity conditioning can you say prescribe as you're close to that fight because i'm assuming i guess as they go into camp maybe sparring starts to ramp up maybe more frequency of training more frequency of high intensity training is there a point where that you don't even you you don't prescribe any more extra conditioning because of that absolutely um about eight weeks out maybe eight to ten weeks out again depending on the person i would be suggesting that all of their conditioning their high intensity conditioning is done through their sparring they should be sparring consistently. They should be sparring different um, people consistently, getting fresh people in consistently, high-intensity bag work, high-intensity pad work, um, and just monitoring mm-hmm. fatigue levels um, then on a daily basis with them. And if there's room, I mean, I, I, t- I tend not to um, I tend not to try and get them to do some kind of sprint training in terms of actual running uh, just because of the risk of injury. Um, combat sport athletes aren't good runners. Uh, they're not trained runners. They're not trained sprinters. <laughs> and I've heard some horror stories of guys going out trying to go balls to the wall and blowing hamstrings and stuff like that because they're just not conditioned yeah. for that kind of output. Uh, so sometimes we, we wheel in the assault bike uh, and we use that just because it takes the eccentric loading off the legs um, and we get them to hit some big, big power yeah. outputs on that. But generally, if possible, Bearing in mind that you know your sparring work is important, it's super important, but it's also high impact, uh, and you have to be careful about you know injuries and busted faces and broken noses or, or, or concussion, even knockouts. Uh, unfortunately, we've had two of these now in the last six weeks here in Ireland, which have impacted on the team. So you have to be really careful about what you're doing with your sparring and making sure that your guys are matched up mm. um, well enough that that doesn't happen. So if you wanted to pull back on your sparring a little bit, you can bring in the assault bike or you can do some uphill running and that to try and gotcha. stimulate that high-end activity. Gotcha. And then I guess the other question is as well in terms of specificity of conditioning. Do you, do you put much emphasis on maybe let's move it back towards out of camp because that's probably the most time you're spending doing uh, I guess conditioning activities outside yeah. of the gym. Are you are you emphasizing well? Hey, you should be doing shadow boxing, whatever it is, something that's related to kickboxing versus going for a run, swim, yeah, whatever absolutely. it is. Or you kind of blend those absolutely. approaches. Absolutely, blended approach uh, is always best. It's very <clears> difficult <throat> to get combat athletes to just do four hours of running in a week, um, just because of the you know the mundane kind of activity that it is. Uh, yeah, so I, I tend to try and, and make it more sport-specific, uh, long-intensity bag work, uh, mixed up with some bike work if possible. I'm not a huge fan of it um, outside of camp. And then if you can get some long-intensity runs in uh, during the morning time, no, well, that's when because running as opposed to cycling is load-bearing. It's a little bit more of a transfer to the sport that we're in. We're on our feet. Um, the biggest uh, the biggest barrier or the biggest obstacle to, to doing the low intensity in terms of the high volume stuff is that most people will say, I haven't got that kind of time. So you have to work with them and, and mm. help them kind of create time within their within their day. And it's the first thing I say to young athletes is, is to take your phone out and look at your screen time. So you've got on, on you know on smartphones now, they'll tell you how long you're spending on a daily basis on the screen. I'm not joking you, James. You know, some of these guys are spending eight hours plus on their screen. And that's not eight hours from <laughs> yeah. start to finish. It's just throughout the day, they're just, you know, just running around their, their social media and stuff. You know, and I said, look, there's eight hours of screen time here. You're telling me you can't take four hours of that. Get up, you know, early in the morning time, making sure your sleep is in, getting up, get fueled and get out for, for a long intensity job. But generally try and prescribe between four and five hours a week, which is not huge in the greater scheme of things. And better again if if you can kind of compound those hours by doing say uh, a two hour run or, and a three hour run or, or or hour and a half runs as opposed to an hour on a Monday an hour on a Tuesday 
an hour on the Wednesday because the research says that, you know, in order to stimulate aerobic adaptations, it's not just about doing low intensity work, but doing high volume of it and making sure that that work is competitive. Mm. So you're trying to get in at least, uh, at least two hours. Um, you know, if you're going for a run to get two hours of it or break it up between pad work and other kind of skills based training. From your research, is there a difference between, say, going for the three one-hour runs or splitting that three hours into, say, 20-minute blocks each day or whatever it is? Is is that too short to be able to almost, like, micro-dose that? Or do you, do you just need to have, okay, you just need to go for an hour or 90 minutes or whatever it is to, to kind of push yeah, the Yeah, unfortunately, you can't micro-dose aerobic <laughs> adaptations in, ter- in, in relation to low-intensity <clears throat> work. And we can talk about high-intensity stuff um, as well. You can mix that. You can mix it yeah. up, too. You can do some fart-like training and up on the speed work working from low to high in that um, if, if you wanted to do it that way. But to, to answer your question, because the aerobic system takes a little bit of time to heat up, to warm up and get going, um, you know, it could only be up going at full throttle when you decide you're just going to pull the plug on it. And, you know, adaptations don't come, yeah. from, you know, don't come from easy sessions. You have to stress the system. So stressing the aerobic system is generally found through that high-volume um, method of, of um of low intensity training so yeah it, it it needs to be it needs to be long in duration in order to get that stimulation no micro gotcha. and then the high intensity mission yeah, yeah yeah unfortunately and then the high intensity yeah it depends um out from camp i like to prescribe some training in and around threshold um this is, will generally be around 90 to 95% of that second threshold point. So if we understand that second threshold point as being a physiological marker, kind of a, a physiological break point between sustainable activity and unsustainable activity, or steady state versus non-steady state physiology. Now, if you get if you try to get a, a combat sport athlete to maintain speed at threshold for a period of time, you generally find them falling away from threshold pretty quickly because they're not conditioned runners. And this is why... I'm not a proponent of running for running distance for time. So trying to find a 5K time or, or an 8K time. And how much sport athletes tend to like this approach uh, a lot. Um, but the problem with it is, is that because we're not trained runners, we don't fully understand the concept of threshold running or running a threshold. Or, you know, in, 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 in endurance sports, it's called um, tempo running or, or race pace, which is just below that sustainable physiological marker. So what happens with combat sport athletes, um, and, and this is from experience, is that they'll t- they're running 5Ks or 8Ks, they'll start off pretty fresh and they'll squash right up the threshold for not, not for that long, maybe six or seven minutes, and then they start to fall away from threshold. And as that happens, as the power output declines, they tend to fall into that no-man's-land area. So they end up being in, in moderato mm-hmm. for, for 25 or 30 minutes which is not ideal, and they could certainly be on something much more beneficial for that time that they're spending. So to get an athlete to the work at a threshold, I generally prescribe just longer intervals, so five by fives and sometimes four by eights at threshold, which means that they can actually stay at threshold for a consistent period of time, accumulate a good block of working minutes there, and take away those adaptations, those aerobic adaptations at that physiological point. Uh, rest and do it again so you're getting these nice injections of high intensity training uh into a uh, into a session where they're not falling off threshold they're not able to sustain their pace um you know and, and they generally don't understand that from from a running perspective or being a trained runner uh, how hard it can be to maintain that pace for a considerable amount of time and this is what happens when you see combat athletes mm. focusing their running on time and, and distance instead they should be really focusing on intensity and duration uh, for better outcomes in my opinion is there a simple field test someone can do to i guess figure out their vt2 threshold or that i guess that Anaerobic uh, it's difficult up there it's it's difficult um you, you'll see people using percentages of max heart rate and stuff like that so it can be pretty easy to get max heart rate just find a hill and run up it um for about 12 minutes and see what you've got <laughs> at the end and then use percentages of that the problem with that is that not everybody's threshold is at the same percentage not everybody's second threshold mm. is at 75 or 80 percent depending on your own conditioning your, your you know your own fitness levels and status 
It could be much lower than that. It could be much higher than that. So if I give an athlete who's unconditioned just a you know a benchmark of eighty percent max heart rate to go out and they try and do that, they're effectively you know they're they're burning themselves. They're burning the candle at both ends, James. To be honest with you, and they're going to be pushing themselves a lot harder than what they should be. Understanding that whatever session that you're doing, what you whatever session you've got programmed to do, there has to be a focus on it. What's the adaptation that you're chasing? You know, you have to have a specific focus on what what are we chasing today? Are we chasing? Uh, are we you know are we looking to extend the Stephen Siler would stay? Are we looking to extend or are we looking to intensify? Uh, and I think that needs to be kind of, you know, that needs to be at the forefront of everybody's minds when they're going to do uh, their endurance training or the conditioning training. And in order to do that, in order to have that specific approach, you need to understand where these thresholds lie um, and you need to be able to know that you can work in and around them rather than just kind of guessing or using other field measurements to try and get there. Because you run the risk of, of either overtraining that stimulus or undertraining it and just wasting time. Yeah. And, and by extend or intensify, you mean if you're looking to extend, you're hitting the low intensity side, you're looking to intensify yeah, your, your exactly. higher end. 100%. Yeah. 100%. 100%. And, gotcha. And then, oh, you know, well, I was, I was going to say that you, what I get a lot of the time is, is, you know, kind of discussions around why bother with low intensity training when our sport doesn't rely on, you know, it's not a low intensity <clears> sport. <throat> why, you know, why does it matter? And, and it's, <laughs> There must be 15 or 20 years worth of research and, and papers within the literature that shows that high intensity repeatability is effectively built on uh, the aerobic base um, yeah. and, and, you know, how strong that is, um, uh, you know, le leverages our ability to be uh, explosive uh, multiple times over and over. And there's a great um, Nils, I can't remember his second name now, he was uh, an endurance skater. He, re he released his... Um, training program there recently online after he won the Olympic gold medal. And he made a great quote in his, uh, in his essay, you know, he's going to release his training journal. Uh, and he said that, you know, with uh, great aerobic power comes great anaerobic responsibility, you know, playing on that old Spider-Man kind of <laughs> catchphrase. Uh, and he's right. And this guy was doing seven hours of low intensity training a day, every day, except Saturday and Sunday. Um, one of the outputs that he Jeez. found from that was that his, his high end, so his capacity to be explosive uh, and repeatedly explosive while on the skates uh, was massively improved by the time that he spent at low intensity training. So the, the evidence is quite solid behind that, James. Uh, and, and, and I think combat sport athletes, regardless of whether they're kickboxers, MMA athletes or, or boxers, uh, I think disregard that uh, modality <laughs> uh, at their own expense, I think. Can can we do too much of that low intensity and take away from that? Yeah, a hundred percent for for us for sure. I mean, we're we're not long distance endurance athletes, so there's no need for us to be doing <clears> seven <throat> to ten hours a day. Uh, absolutely, I mean, there's a fine balance to be had in relation to that. I mean, if you spend all of your time training at low intensity, well, then you're going to take away the uh, ability of fast twitch type two muscles mm. to 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 function. They need to be stimulated. Uh, in order to stimulate them, you need to do the high end stuff. Um, yeah, so you know we don't we don't want to we we don't want to become marathon runners. We don't want to become cross country skiers. You know where their physiology is it leans heavily towards type one high fat oxidation rates, uh, very very low lactate production. You know we need we we need an amount of that to support where we generally belong during competition, which is um, most of the time above that second threshold. We are in the heavy intensity domain. We're 90, 90 plus percent max heart rate. Sometimes we're at VO2 max, um, and that's all very, very high intensity work. Um, but our ability to be there and be there repeatedly is built on a, a platform of aerobic-based building. Mm. So it's about getting that fine balance right. And this is why I think physiological testing is so important. Uh, for athletes, just to get an insight. I'm not saying it's a panacea to all problems in relation to endurance, but it just gives an insight in relation to, well, are we are we getting the right adaptations here with this program that we've um, put together for you? Are things starting to slip? You know, is your high-end stuff starting to contract? Um, and with that kind of insight, we can manipulate the program in order to get a better result. Gotcha. I guess the other I guess, argument for this kind of polarized model as well is, how quickly you adapt to the high intensity work and how quickly it may plateau. Do you have any maybe experience or data or anything? Yeah. Kind of, I guess. Yeah. 
yeah, how quickly that, that yeah, may occur. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's like pretty that. significant research in relation to the uh, uh, adaptations from high intensity <laughs> interval training. And what we know from that research is that the response or the bump that you'll get uh, is pretty rapid, um, and, but it doesn't stay around for mm. too long. So it kind of peaks pretty quickly and then kind of tapers off in about six weeks. Um, and this is why we have to be very careful with our prescription of high intensity training, because if we just continue to layer it on, well, then the fallout from that is that you just push the athlete off the cliff. So, the, you know, it's like having that glass under the tap. You turn the tap on and now the glass is overflowing and, and you know, none of, none of that is any use to anybody. Uh, there are some papers that show um, an increase in autonomic stress, oxidative stress from too much high intensity training. In trained and untrained people, there's even worse in terms of uh, degradation of PGC1-alpha, which is a master regulator for endurance adaptations and stuff like that, so down-regulation of that. Uh, and other nasty things that, that can push um, a person into, into overreaching and overtraining. And effectively, you know, we run the risk of, of, of making them sick, fatigued, maybe injured. Um, so, yeah, you, you have to be careful. And this is why it's mm. called a prescription, right? You know, you, you go to your doctor, you get a prescription that you follow. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's important that we that we administer the right doses, in particular for high intensity training. But if we're doing too much, too often, we peak the athlete too quickly, and then if we expect them to stay there uh, in peak condition while they're still training, maybe eight weeks out, well then we run we could we could run into some issues. I'm not saying that happens all the time, uh, but you certainly yeah. could run into some issues. So there is a yeah, there's always the chance they're doing too much too soon. Gotcha. And then I guess, how do you put this together into a training week? Obviously, you've got the low intensity stuff to touch on, maybe the high intensity stuff on, then you've got all your technical training on top of that. So how does your week look in terms of, I guess, the prescription, I guess, throughout that microscope? Yeah, and this is this is the tricky bit. This is what you have to work uh, with guys on because everybody's mm. circumstances uh, are, are different. But we do try to get an undulating kind of approach to, to the weeklies, uh, to the weekly program. Um, generally, try. I suggest trying to get that low stuff done early in the morning. Try to get it out of the way before the day starts. If that means getting up an hour or two early, as long as the sleep is good, okay? So if they're saying to me, I'm in bed at half 11 every night, I'll say, well, no, let's let's target 10. Let's, let's target half nine, 10 at night time. If we're going to be serious about this, and then we're up at maybe 6, half 6 in the morning time, and we'll knock out two hours or an hour and a half of low intensity. That leaves them then some, some time during the day to refuel, rehydrate, recover, uh, some some guys will go get a swim in the afternoon, maybe do a yoga session, and then they'll get their skills training in the evening time. And we'll look at the evening time and see, well, what's on the menu for the evening time? Are we going to be sparring? Are we going to be doing bag work? If so, I suggest you try and push it a little bit harder and try to get into a high-intensity zone. So you've got this kind of undulating approach to their to their uh, training on a mm-hmm. basis. And that changes and that flips on its head from, from day to day. As long as you've got your kind of your standard approach to training intensity distribution, you know, you won't put power sessions and high intensity sessions back to back. You won't do very high intensity sessions late at night because of interrupt sleep uh, and, and, and stuff like that. So you have to work with them in, in some real world applications and try and build it around their college, their work, their, you know, their personal life, because they're amateur athletes, they're not pros. Uh, and you have to take all of that into consideration. Uh, but generally, that, yeah, generally that's the approach, James. Do you, do you maybe have like an example of someone you're working with now of kind of how they're weak? Yeah, sure. So I'm working currently now with the 60 kilogram world champion, female world champion, Amy Wall. Uh, she won the world championships last year. She's a primary school teacher. So her day starts early. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it starts early. But uh, here in Ireland, primary school teachers can generally finish about half past two, three o'clock in the day. So she'll get up early in the morning time before school and she got the, the um, treadmill in the house and she'll knock out a couple of hours on the treadmill. And while she's on the treadmill, she's probably planning her day out in terms of how the day is going to look in the classroom. So she'll get her low-intensity ones done early on. We'll meet then during the day, and we'll get some pad sessions done. To give you an example of what we did last week, uh, last Friday, there was a typical day. Um, we met for Friday, did some pad work, some technical work. She's got a fight in Spain this coming weekend. Um, and then we did some high-intensity work towards the end of it. Uh, so 30-second 30, 30 repeats on the bag, monitoring heart, monitoring heart rate, and heart rate recovery in between. Um, so that's a, that's a typical day. And then interspersed that during the week with some uh, strength training. Well, she's in power training now at the moment, so speed and power. Um, and we keep that minimum dose at this point. Um, so just doing a lot of med ball work, mm-hmm. heavy med ball work, and throws and jumps and stuff like that uh, to keep that topped up as well. Nice. Where does the strength training fit in that week? Is it, is it twice a week? 
um, in the mornings as well? Is that in twice the- a week? I generally, I generally leave that them to work out um, what where that best fits. Okay. Um, if the high volume work, the low intensity works works better in the morning. It tends to work better in the morning time for a lot of people. But if they've already got a program gym session, well then that's fine. Let that stay where it is, and we'll move to low intensity work around. I, de- I tend to keep the strength training um, simple. Try not to spend too much time doing all of these fancy things that they're, you know, they come to see certain yeah. people on Instagram <laughs> balancing one one foot. Uh, you know, they've got a dumbbell on their forehead and you know, all this crazy stuff. So we try to keep things nice and nice and simple, especially in the strength building phase. You know, doing your 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 meat and two veg. You know, your squats, your bench, your push, your pull, your press, all that stuff. Um, a lot of hinge work, um, keeping that nice and functional. Um, and keep, and then once that once that strength phase is done, just keeping that kind of um, micro dosing that then throughout the program, um, not spending too much time in the right. weight room. So we can spend a lot of time in the weight room. We can spend a lot of time in conditioning and do very little skills work. These guys need to be spending a lot of time in skills work. And I find the strength training then is a is a is um, a, a help to just keeping them robust uh, and keeping them injury free. Yeah. Nice, nice. So there, okay, that that covers the week. But I guess the other question is around a sparring day. So how does the day look before and and the day after a sparring day? Yeah, it depends. I mean, if 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 we're if we're sparring, so there's two kinds of sparring that I use in in our training. One is kind of technical, tactical, kind of working out concepts and theories, some constraints led approach to developing skill and decision making. Uh, which we kind of operate at about 70% kind of speed and intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're fine. They're, they're kind of standard kind of sessions. But then there's test sparring. So the Vaseline goes on, the big head guards go on, the 16-ounce glove goes on, and they're going at it. Uh, so that they're getting tested. So that's super maximal activity. Um, and it's important to ensure that in the build-up to that kind of session, that, you know, that they're not after doing, um, you know, a, a load of high-intensity work that day or that morning that they're well-rested, they're well-fueled and hydrated, uh, and that they've got ample time to go home and, and unwind uh, from those sessions before they hit the sack and get you know a good eight or nine hours sleep. And then generally the next morning, they'll try and prescribe something very low intensity for recovery, whether that's a walk or a swim, yeah. a bit of mobility work. Yeah. Some of these guys love to foam roll for some reason for hours and hours. If that's, if that's <laughs> their thing, you know, let them at it. Uh, but essentially kind of buffering out either side of those particular sparring sessions one with uh, adequate rest, recovery, fuel, hydration for the session itself, because they're psychologically hard on themselves if they don't perform and test sparring. And then it, making sure then at the end of that, the day after that, the mm. part of the day, then that there's some ample time for uh, rest and recovery if, if they've got the time within their day to do that. Nice. I actually want to come back a bit to your sparring. You talked about that constraints yeah. that approach to your sparring, kind of almost problem solving. Obviously, this is more on, a little more on the technical side, but obviously, as as I guess physical preparation grows, we're getting this blend mm. of physical prep and the actual technical tactical of the sports, as as it should be. But I wanted to: how are you, I guess, creating these sessions? I guess it was called problem solving sessions within sparring. Yeah, it's such it's such a it's it's I I, I love I love constraint led coaching because you can be so creative with. Mm. It. Um, and you're essentially just experimenting um, you know, by using different scenarios. So essentially, like a constraints that approach from a combat um, sports um, perspective, James, would be um, manipulating the environment, essentially manipulating the environment that they're sparring in. So, so uh, reducing the ring size, for example, uh, would be one way of doing it. Reducing the ring size means there's more activity. More activity means that there's more decision-making to be had. And within that, then, we might constrain one of the fighters by saying, well, you're not allowed to use your backhand in this one, okay? Or the other person can only use the front hand. Or sometimes you're not allowed to respond. It's just head movement and angles, uh, trying to get into a dominant position just by footwork. There's lots of creative ways you can create uh, constraints uh, within combat sport training in order to enhance the athlete's own decision-making. Um, lots of ways to do it. Mm. I guess one of the biggest uh, mistakes that coaches make is that they're trying to prescribe a specific outcome by using a constraint. In fact, the use of a constraint is to allow the athlete to find the way out or, or, or what's called those affordances. Okay, so mm. what's in front of them? How can they work out the problem that's in front of them in order to get back into a dominant position or score a shot uh, or even go for the knockout shot or whatever the outcome 
uh, might be. But the, the underlying philosophy behind all of that is that, you know, like like all sports, um, James, to, to varying degrees, they're all puzzles, they're all chaos, and the person that's involved in it, the athlete yeah. involved in it, is the person that needs to make the decisions in order to work out the puzzle. Uh, and, and you know, and that's that's really really prevalent in combat sport where you've got one person in front of you who wants to hit you and beat you, um, whether that beat you down or beat you on points. But for me, that's just it's just a puzzle that needs to be solved. Um, you know, the coach acts as a support mechanism yeah. outside the ring in relation to that. It's the athlete that's in there that needs to solve that solve that puzzle, solve that equation. How do I get around this? What's you know what's happening in front of me? What's the rhythm I'm moving at? What tempo are they moving at? What happens when they move their front leg? What hand do they prefer to to to, uh, to fire off first? Do they kick first? When they kick, do they stand square after the kick? All of these things, massive amount of decision making in combat sport. So, constraints led mm. coaching and constraints led training enables the athlete or it empowers the athletes to uh, become better decision makers. Um, because too too much joystick coaching takes place in combat sports. Uh, it's an old school approach. Yeah. It's an old school mindset where the coach thinks they have the answer to what's going on in the ring, and they're going to shout the answer to the problems into you, and you have to repeat physically what they're telling you to do. Um, and there's no worse way to develop an athlete by doing this because you're essentially killing their own ability to make decisions for themselves. The best coaches are the quiet yeah. coaches. The best athletes don't require sure. constant reminders from their coach in the corner about what to do. If you have an athlete that you're telling what you have to do every second of the fight, and you're not doing much coaching at all, to be honest with you. You know, you need to reevaluate <laughs> your practice and what's yeah. you. So to answer your question, um, I'm sorry, James, I tend to ramble around in corners a little bit and come back to the point. No, that's good. That's uh, perfect. Yeah, the constraints-led <laughs> approach um, is one of the ways that uh, we can enhance our athletes' decision-making abilities and, and make them more rounded fighters. I guess that's why they, they say some people look great on the pads, but as soon as they have someone in front of them, it Absolutely, man. There you go. Everybody, <laughs> you know, everyone loves sessions on the pads and posting them on social media. But, you know, it's an old Bruce Lee saying, right? You know, those pads don't hit you back. Uh, and apart from anything else, <laughs> who's calling the shots on the pads? It's, it's the pad holder, right? So, you know, you're not dictating anything. <laughs> you're just responding to instructions. Pad works great for yeah. you know for some form of endurance or technique development especially, but um, you know throwing lots of random shots on pads and thinking that some way it's just going to transfer into the ring is uh, yeah it's a little bit ignorant I think it doesn't happen that way. Do you think that's a, it's almost kind of a, a good advertisement for the way, I guess Thai fighters like to almost play or low intensity spar often yeah. like that. To me that to me that makes sense in terms of development being able to do that as much as oh, possible. Okay. Um, I guess that kind of that fits into their decision making model too. Absolutely, yeah. You see these guys doing that a lot, um, and you know you, you mm. do see from time to time in, in in professional setups where athletes and coaches have come to conclusions themselves, and they, you know they come up with training scenarios like this, which make perfect sense. You know they've solved the the problem for what they're trying to achieve, and they, they come up with this way of training. Yeah, and then oh, I had another I had another question on. I completely slipped my mind now. I just had it. I had it on the tip of my tongue. It's there somewhere. It's there somewhere. <laughs> it's there somewhere on the on the constraint. Ah, oh, and if someone's going to learn, maybe read up a bit on the constraints-led, I guess, approach to training. Is, do you, are there any resources that people can kind yeah, of Yeah, there's, there's lots. There's, there's very little in combat sport, but, I mean, it doesn't need to be specific to combat sport to understand the concept. You know, you just need to be creative in terms of your session, your practice design. Um, to to ensure that you're you know that you're 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 using a constraints led approach, but there's lots of books out there. The constraints led led approach CLA. Uh, jump onto Twitter. There's lots of great discussions in, on on Twitter uh, with academics and, and practitioners and coaches. Like the the constraints led approach is, is massive within field sports. You know, in soccer, football, basketball. Mm. Uh, you know, invasion sports, rugby, and stuff like that. Um, yep. but the, I used it often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So I mean, yeah. the, 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 it's a concept. You just need to mold <laughs> the concept into your into your uh, practice, um, and making sure that your session design then is shaped in some way that uh, your athletes are are getting the best out of that. You know, and that you're not being too prescriptive with it. Sometimes the best thing to do is just yeah. 
design a session, put some constraints in, stand back and see what these guys are doing because they're solving problems in Italy. And, you know, you can get a lot of light bulbs yeah. as a coach. So, geez, you know, the way that guy sorted that out or fixed that or came to that conclusion. Uh, and you see a lot of that in relation to kind of flanking or using angles, stepping off, pivoting. Um, you know, one of the philosophies of my kind of skills training is, you know, always should I get to the back of the opponent, uh, you know, slipping off tight to the flank, being in a position uh, where mm. they can't see you for a split second, but you can see them. Um, and you just throw that into the mix and you get a, you know, a group of athletes to work that out you know, make the ring smaller, yeah. put two on one and see what happens. You know, they've got this lovely flow, this lovely style of just moving, just slipping under the elbow, coming under the armpit, finding themselves in very advantageous positions. And then, you know, and then saying to themselves when you when you do kind of a reflection period with them afterwards, you know, that felt really nice. That felt really flowy. I ended up in a position where I was in a much dominant, much more dominant kind of position against them. And I wasn't getting hit. I wasn't sidestepping. Um, you know, I was using the Q angles and stuff like that. So, there's lots of resources out there once you go looking. Um, doesn't matter if it's in field sports or if it's you know if it's in sports that are not like ours. Take the concept, understand it, and then try to apply it to your own practice. I think something else that's often well, not used as much is just the idea of play as well. Just yeah. letting athletes play and kind of do their thing instead of you know this is the drill. You're stuck in that, whereas just let, kind of let them explore and, uh, and do their thing. Agree more, you know. Yeah. Some of the best sessions mm -hmm. we have is where we just tell the athletes to be creative. Just go and do stuff. Yeah. You know, fight cell part if you're not normally set. Just do it and, and see what comes out, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, throw those spin kicks that you don't normally throw. You know, you throw them well on the pad, but you never throw them well in the ring, you know, because there's no confidence there behind them. Throw it to hell with it. See what mm -hmm. happens. Be creative. <clears throat> yeah. You know, enjoy making mistakes. Um, and, and that's not something you hear a lot in, in combat sport um, environments, you know. You know, it's mm. okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be creative. It's okay to, to try and find things out for yourself. It's usually very prescriptive. Um, and what you find, you find the coach's kind of theory and philosophy imposed on the fighter. So if they're working on particular techniques, then they refine. They, the athlete naturally contracts to that kind of narrow viewpoint of the coach where they might have a much broader mm. sense or a much more um, developed uh, set of tools that they never get to employ because they've been told to follow a prescriptive kind of approach. So that creative approach for me, I think, is one of the best ways for athletes to tap into things that they're good at yeah. and know that, you know, they, that they get comfortable with doing. <laughs> but that can only happen in an environment that allows it to happen, James. You know, some of these combat sport environments are... Yeah. They've got this toxic masculinity going on, you know. It's all about bravado, <laughs> and, you know. It's all about not losing, training hard, go go hard or go home. All this nonsense, you know. And it's an environment yeah. which doesn't allow for uh, creativity. It doesn't allow for mistakes. It doesn't allow for discussion and reflection. Uh, I think these are really yeah. really important concepts within a, a, a you know a proper talent development environment. For sure. I want to just to finish this up. I want to bring this back to the conditioning, and I, I have one more question to you regarding. I guess mm -hmm. the building and developing of, of new mitochondria. So I've talked to a few different coaches on here about about I guess mitochondrial biogenesis or just big building new mitochondria yeah. within that. And I guess for anyone listening, we're just talking about like the powerhouses of the aerobic energy mm -hmm. system. And I've had <clears throat> coaches talk about low intensity work to do this, high intensity work to do this. Is there maybe something you've looked at, used anything like that, that maybe kind of runs down the path of, okay, we're, we're creating new mitochondria. This is kind of like almost like the protocol to do it. Can you do it both high and low intensity? Is there one better than the other or anything like that? No, there's definitely not one better than the other. They all, and, and this is one of the myths around um, training <clears> zones, you know, training in zone three establishes this type of adaptation. Training in zone four is a completely mm. different one, you know. Now, training across the intensity uh, spectrum essentially stimulates aerobic adaptations or um, mitochondrial biogenesis or an increase in mitochondrial respiration. Um, the only difference is being is that if you're training high intensity, the endurance adaptations are stimulated via a different, a different biochemical pathway through AMPK um, enzymes, 
and through low intensity, low to moderate intensity through CAMPK enzymes. So two different pathways, but they essentially meet in the middle. Mm. And the same master switch is twig, which is that PGC1-alpha protein, which stimulates the anaerobic adaptation, which is mitochondrial biogenesis, the development of more mitochondria, gotcha. an increase in mitochondrial uh, respiration rates and capacity and stuff like that. The only issue with the high-intensity stuff is that what research tells us is that there's a possibility of too much of that stuff tends to undo some of those adaptations yeah. or can certainly peak too too early. So yeah, you can yeah you can you can stimulate you can stimulate those adaptations using using either of those modalities. Okay. The, the the plus of low intensity training is that one you don't you, you don't accumulate uh, tons of autonomic stress uh, while doing that, which allows the athlete yeah. to remain fresh, to remain consistent, to remain injury free. Uh, just to give you a, a real world example, one athlete that I was working with recently. Um, uh, after a knees analysis with him, uh, he joined an athletics club in order to improve his, his, his conditioning for combat sport. But the discipline that he got involved in was 400 meter running. So these guys are running at the extremes, you know, 400, 800 meter running. So they're, they're running high intensity every training session. Um, and he wasn't conditioned for that. So he, I, from evaluation, he was starting to see the uh, effects of, of, of uh, training too hard too often. Uh, and eventually got him around to thinking about training a little bit more at low intensity and just, you know, just parking the high intensity training for the time being and allowing a system to kind of rest and recover. And what he found in, within six weeks and what he reported to me in six weeks was that, number one, he found that uh, he was sleeping better. He had more energy during the day. He felt fresher during training and felt he was recovering quicker in between rounds. Mm. Now, that's not because he did how many weeks of low intensity training and, and, and low intensity training fixed all of that through mitochondrial respiration and biogenesis. <laughs> um, it was the fact that he wasn't spending so much time at high intensity sessions all of the time. And in fact, all he was, yeah. all he was doing was actually allowing his body to recover and adapt. And now he was starting to feel the benefits of how he had been training by feeling that he had more energy during the day, sleeping better, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this is why training intensity uh, distribution is so, so important, is that, yeah, you're, you're yeah. targeting the same aerobic adaptations. You're targeting the same endurance capacity in order to be able to do high-intensity repeated exchanges. But you have to be sensible in how you're doing that, understanding that training at low intensities for high duration uh, allows you to remain consistent. It doesn't uh, layer on autonomic fatigue and stress. It allows you to stay fresh and it allows you to, to train consistently in a build-up to a camp. The other end, then, the other end of the, of the polarized approach is that you're just tapping into that anaerobic capacity and you're keeping it topped up um, two or three times a week, and that's it, because that's all it needs two or, two or three times a week until you're getting closer to your event. Then you've got that kind of bipolar approach where they invert and, and high-intensity training becomes more more prevalent. Gotcha, that makes sense. And then obviously within the higher intensity, when you're bumping up the kind of volume in that domain, you're almost kind of looking to be able to tolerate that buildup of lactate yeah. there. And, and obviously the hydronines, everything that kind of comes mm -hmm. with it. And then back, backing off a little bit from the aerobic side, so you have more time and energy to kind of spend on that high intensity work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And more mitochondria develop, more mitochondria biogenesis means a quicker clearance of, of lactate. Um, and lactate just happens to be a handy biomarker <laughs> for um, for hydrogen ion concentration. Lactate's not the issue at all. Yeah. Lactate is actually a very functional yeah. molecule that does a lot of really funky things in our body. Uh, and in fact, uh, is, is, is a fuel source that allows us to continue to train at high intensities. It's what comes with that as part of the, the uh, glycolytic uh, ATP process is that there's free protons uh, hanging around, hydrogen ions accumulate, um, and they're generally in a ratio one-to-one -one with lactate. So if there's lactate in the blood and if it's accumulating, it's a biomarker for an accumulation of hydrogen ions and a drop in pH, which is when we start to get that intramuscular fatigue and acidosis. The more mitochondria we have, well, then the quicker the uptake of lactate uh, into the muscle where lactate is, is changed back into pyruvate and is oxidated in the mitochondria. So this is where the aerobic system is so important at high intensities. People think that we get to a point within the intensity continuum and aerobic respiration cuts off and anaerobic metabolism takes yeah. over. That's not the case at all. <clears throat> if that was to happen, we'd probably only last a couple of seconds once we get past that physiological threshold point, that fatigue threshold. 
the reality is is that our ability to be powerful at high intensities is built on our aerobic system because it's the aerobic system that is is replenishing um it's clearing lactate it's it's replenishing pcr um you know it's doing all these funky things that allows us to keep um to keep in the zone at high intensity and without that platform without that base our ability to do that will be diminished uh, considerably and we'll gas out really yeah. quick. Is there a point where there's too much, I know we talked about too much high intensity being fati- really fatiguing and a, and a lot of other things there, but is there a point where that acidosis starts to erode mitochondria, I guess, you know, and then starts to reduce our aerobic ability? Is like, how much, well, where's the line? Yeah, there's not. The, the, yeah, I was listening to a podcast there not so long ago. Um, it was actually with George Brooks, who was one of the leading professors behind the um, discovery of the lactate shuttle theory. So moving away from this concept of lactic acid, which doesn't exist at all in our systems, yeah. uh, and understanding the lactate shuttle. And he mentioned uh, reading a paper uh, at one point um, where a coach was, was interviewed and, and suggested that too much lactate in the system might actually be bad for mitochondria, mitochondrial function. I don't think, to the best of my knowledge, James, that there is any empirical evidence to suggest that. Mm. Um, okay. That's not to say that there isn't. Um, like lactate has so many functions, so many roles uh, in the body. It's it, you know, it's 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 produced aerobically. It it has a, it has um, you know an endocrine effect as well as it is a signaling model uh, molecule. Um, it shuts off beta oxidation. It transfers energy to the brain and to the heart. It's a preferred uh, fuel source for the brain. Um, it goes to the liver for gluconeogenesis. There's lots of really positive aspects to lactate. And I've, I've yet to come across a paper myself that says, ooh, lactate's not, not good. That's not to say that maybe in certain capacities it could have issues. I know there's a lot of research around cancer and uh, lactate metabolism around cancer and uh, tumor cells and stuff like that where lactate seems to be prevalent um, but people are still, scientists are still um, trying to get the grips with what lactate role is around tumors and stuff like that but to answer your question mm. I'm, I'm not I'm not confident to say that there's, a, there's significant evidence to suggest yeah. that lactate is an issue for mitochondria That's good, that's good, that's very good and I think it was you there posted in the Science for Sport group one time when I posted about lactate pills yeah. I think we so tell me, is one, is that a thing yeah. at the moment? Two, do you potentially believe that could be something almost like an endurance? We'll call it a hack because that's obviously what they're going to call it when they sell yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> an endurance hack. Yeah, yeah po- po- possibly. Um, there was a drink developed uh, many years ago by George, Professor George Brooks. Um, and it was a lactate polymer that was injected into this sports drink um, with the idea that, uh, you know, lactate is a fuel source. So if you if you put lactate into the blood, into the system, that it will yeah. it will keep um, you know peripheral lactate from being developed, yeah. and there'll be an adequate supply of lactate in the blood. I I don't think it took off. I I don't think it took off, and I'm I'm not sure there's a whole lot of evidence or a lot of research in that area. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Who knows? It, it it could well be something, but I'm not I'm not sure, James. To be honest with you, I'm not sure. I'd be skeptical. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That'll be very interesting if they started doing some research on that, yeah. and and then that becomes the next big endurance yeah. supplement. Can you imagine that <laughs> tape plus or something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, perfect. I think I think I've asked you pretty much everything on this on this podcast now. But if there's anything you want to add, you can. But other than that, is there a way people can follow you, find what you're doing, keep up? Well, with if anything? anyone finds me interesting enough, I hang around Instagram every now and again. Uh, I've just started a doctoral <laughs> degree, so I intend on not being there too often. But I'm John Mackey on Instagram. If anyone wants to jump on and make contact, I'm happy to have discussions around the uh, concept of endurance training with combat sports. I guess it's important to say that, you know, what I've said here in relation to my approach to endurance training and, and kickboxing um, it doesn't mean it's the right way. We're still wondering and still trying to find out what's the right way to yeah. uh, to apply our, our conditioning training within combat sports. There's lots and lots of different opinions out there. I'm really looking forward to Andrew Usher um, finishing his PhD and making some publications around the work that he's doing. I think that, yeah. work, I think that work is going to be it's going to be seminal. Um, and it's going to fill a knowledge gap in relation to uh, what we know about, you know, um, uh, the, the, what's happening at a peripheral level, at a cellular level within in combat sport. And I know he's, he's boxing uh, specifically, but there's, I'm sure there'll be a lot that we can take from that 
into the other striking arts. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. But my the, the main point is that, um, you know, look at the science behind endurance training and, and see if you can make some informed decisions around what you're doing with your own athletes, um, and take it from there. Awesome. Yeah. If anyone's interested, Andrew Usher was on a few episodes ago. You can listen to that. His research is going to be epic. Yeah. Also, um, Gary, Gary Turner's research on concussion yeah. um, or, or traumatic brain injury. That's going to be, uh, I believe, change the game in that yeah, regard as well. In terms I, don't, of, I think we can't be ignorant of yeah. TBIs anymore in combat sport. Yeah, um, man, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a scary Absolutely. thing. So, yeah, there's some... There's some awesome stuff coming out. Even uh, last week's episode with Carling and Evans, he's got some great stuff coming out in terms of weight cutting. I've been trying to I've had him over um, with Kickboxing Ireland doing a <laughs> webinar on, on, on weight management. So that, you know, he's a, he's a, a mind of information and a cool guy too. Yeah. Yeah, he's a beast. So a lot of good research coming out in, terms, in, com- in the combat sports space, but she said there's such a, it's a relatively new yeah. space in terms of research 100%. as well. So, 100%. Uh, yeah, that's Keep it going. Awesome. Keep but, it going. Thank you for coming. James, on, a Pat. pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah. I hope um, I hope it was useful. I hope people got something from this. Very. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, even I learned a lot from this. Lovely. So perfect. Cheers, Thank you Take very care much. Yourself. All the best.